Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin, author of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are talking about a pretty good weekend of racing we just had with the European Road Race Championships, Tour of Britain wrapping up, the Antwerp Port Classic. We all, we all grew up loving the Antwerp Port Classic. Who doesn't love that? But it was significant because Matthew Vanderpool was racing in it, and it was a chance for him to test his injured that back he injured at the Olympic mountain bike race, I guess served as a testing ground for his Dutch team to see if he could compete at the Worlds and Paris-Roubaix that are coming up. We also have Sarah Gigante, fantastic young rider, 20-year-old rider, a former Australian national road race champion. That's not a junior national road race champion. That's like uh, their, their professional national road race champion at 18, currently on Team Tipco Silicon Valley Bank but is going to Movistar for the 2022 season. So uh, I have a long-ish interview with her, so I'll just get through the racing stuff as quickly as possible so we can get over to Sarah ASAP. But first, if you want to support the podcast, sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition that comes out once a week. If you like the podcast, that's a no-brainer. Sign up for it right now. There's a link in the episode notes. Uh, There's a paid edition. It comes out daily during Grand Tours and thrice weekly. During the other weeks, it covers every ma- breaks down every major race, and you get discount to select brands like Stages Cycling and FastCat Coaching Plans. So if you want to get faster, this is definitely the way to do it, and you can save some money. So sign up at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, just a couple quick hits. Tour of Britain. Woot Van Aert wins the overall after winning four of the eight stages. Um, super impressive. He looked, I was shocked at just how calm he looked in the sprints. He was just cleaning up these sprints. Not a grade eight sprint field. Uh, Mark Cavendish and Andre Greipel. You know, if it was the year 2014, yeah, that's that's a whew, that is a blue chip sprint field. But these guys are old, very old. Um, still impressive. I mean, Cavendish was the the sprinter du jour at the Tour. So the fact that Wout is just beating him up in these sprints um, was was really impressive. And I, I'd say the most impressive thing I sent out a, a newsletter about this. He won on a really steep, uh, I wouldn't call it a summit finish, I guess up, uphill finish, but it was legitimately hard. Like 2.5K at got to be got to be double digits, average gradient. Um, the fact that he could beat Mike Woods and Julian Alaphilippe on that is, shows he's in really good form. Um, it, it was really impressive. And then just to, just to really, he, he was so calm in these bunch sprints. And what's pretty amazing about that is he loses close to half a minute in the team time trial to Ineos. Um, young rider Ethan Hader on that team looked like he had the overall wrapped up at that point. And then Wout just, you know, all he just had to keep winning stages and collecting that 10 second time bonus. But there was even a stage where Ethan got second or third behind him. So, you know, that limits the, the time gap he can gain that turns a 10 second bonus into something like a six or a four second bonus. I'm um, going into the final stage. He was four seconds down. He needed to finish i guess top three to win the overall and he just doesn't panic i mean gripel went early i thought gripel had it um kind of would have been an amazing win it it was bizarre watching gripel sprint against cavendish it was like felt like we were in a time machine and then it was a fast it was like a downhill tailwind fast sprint and which is impossible you know almost impossible to come around people on and wow just doesn't panic and just pops right by gripel uh really impressive i think He's the absolute favorite for Worlds, which means he probably won't win Worlds. It's just a question of, well, how, how will that happen? How will he screw it up? Um, I'll get into one potential issue I see for him in a minute. Uh, but first, let's talk about European Road Race Championships. Super difficult course in Trento. 
Italia. Really a beautiful, it was a beautiful race. Um, it made me want to fly to Italy ASAP. Beautiful time to be in Italy. Great time to be in Italy. We should all be taking vacations to Italy in September, October. Maybe the first Beyond the Peloton members summit will be in Trentino in October. But this was the course was hard on paper and then potentially even harder in reality. Um, it was really, really hard racing. I mean, the fact that there was not even really a token breakaway getting away with like a really select group was formed with Tate Pogacar, Rimko Evenepoel. I thought Pogacar was going to win this, but he did struggle a bit when uh, Remco attacked on the penultimate lap on the penultimate climb, drops Pogacar. Makes sense if you think about it uh, a little bit critically, where you win the Tour de France, you go to the Olympics, you get third at the Olympics, and then he hasn't really raced since then. I guess he did one race in Normandy right after the Olympics. I'm not sure why he did that, by the way. But um, yeah, he probably, I, I would assume he took some time off and was probably partying quite hard. I mean, who, who, who would blame him for that? So he's probably just building up his form from that. Rimka looked incredible when he attacked, but potentially even more incredible is that Sonny Cabrelli goes with him. Um, Cabrelli didn't win a stage of the Tour, but he looked really strong at that race. I mean, he looked like a different rider at the Tour de France. He wins the Benelux Tour last week or two weeks ago. Uh, he, he's so strong. I mean, he's finally converting that strength into wins. Um, I should have said this up top. He wins the European Rotorist Championships because... Rimko, as soon as he attacked, should have realized Cabrelli was with him and just stopped working and said, hey, hey, Sonny, you want to win this race? Uh, you work and I'll sit on you and try to drop you on the final climb. Um, the thing you don't do is look back and see Sonny Cabrelli is with you and just keep motoring and then pull him all the way to the line, which is exactly what he did. There was one climb remaining, but the fact that he had been pulling and Sonny Cabrelli sitting on means he essentially eliminates his chances of dropping him because it's so much easier to sit on someone's wheel. Um, if he had forced Cabrelli to the front and said, all right, there's three of us, there's Benoit Cosnefre, Sonny Cabrelli and myself, we're going to share the work, and then I'm going to attack you guys on the final climb, he might have been able to get away solo. Um, he completely misreads this race, total disaster, and then after he doesn't drop Cabrelli on the final climb, he just keeps pulling him. Um, around 4K to go, he does force Cabrelli to come through and take a few token poles, but at that point, the damage is done. And then um, the worst thing he did was allowing Cabrelli to slot in second wheel with about a kilometer and a half to go. Cabrelli says, great, I'm here. I'm staying here until the final turn. And Remco has a few half-hearted attempts to push him to the front. Doesn't, you know, doesn't really stand a chance of doing that, though. Sonny Cabrelli is so much more experienced than him, better in this type of tactical racing. Uh, Cabrelli dive bombs the final corner. I mean, it's like textbook exactly how you do it. If Remco was trying to win this race, he would have been the one dive bombing the final corner, accelerating out of it, hoping to catch Cabrelli out, get a, get a gap, and then use his uh, aerodynamics and power to kind of upset, overturn the apple cart, as they say, to win that sprint. Instead, Cabrelli dive bombs it. Um, once he's in first position coming through that final corner, it's game over. Uh, he looks back, is wondering, well, when's Remco going to come around me on the sprint? realizes that he's dropping Remco before he even really starts sprinting because he's that much faster than him, and then just powers away on the cobblestone, slightly uphill finish. You couldn't make a more perfect finish for Sonny Cabrelli to win the race. Uh, he's, he's absolutely flying. It, it highlights two, two big things for me. One, Sonny Cabrelli could win the world championships. He is not as big of a name as, you know, even like Peter Sagan will probably be even higher rated, more highly rated than him. 
there's going to be a lot of, um, he's going to be, I think, the bargain in the many betting markets is too. He's not, you know, he's not as strong as Wout Van Aert because who is, but as far as the best of the rest, I think he's stronger than, than anyone. He can take on anyone at this point. He's absolutely flying. He can get over tough, tough climbs and also sprint. Other, take, other big takeaway, Remco, we, we knew this, but Remco Evenepoel does not know how to race bikes. This is a problem. Um, it's because he was a professional soccer player until fairly recently, got into cycling late, he has no tactical awareness, really no in-race strategy. He just relies on his, he is incredible aerodynamic form on the bike. I mean, it's like, it's, it's how you would, you would draw it up in a lab. Uh, he, he is the perfect solo breakaway rider for, for mass start races. Cause he can, he can almost replicate his time trial position on the road bike. And he's a really smooth, efficient pedal stroke. The thing is he doesn't have huge power. He's not a Wout Van Aert, Matthew Vanderpool, Fabian Cancellara type. He's a pretty small guy. So the, his big advantage comes from being so aerodynamic. That works if you're in a smaller race and you can get away. You can you can just kind of bully people, break away and win solo. And that's how a lot of almost all of his wins come that way. He and then in a in a major race, he absolutely has to win solo. The problem is it's harder to like we saw he couldn't ride Sonny Cabrelli off his wheel because Sonny Cabrelli is such a good, talented rider that even if he's in trouble on a climb, he can just, you know, he can do like eight, 900 watts for five or 10 seconds to hang onto his wheel and then recover. You can't just, you know, really class riders, only the biggest and best riders can, can just ride them off their wheel. It's almost impossible. That's why it's so special when Filippo Ghana and Fabian Cancellara do it in road races. Uh, this is going to be a huge issue. A, his his lack of tactical awareness, and B, his his limitations as a race winner, essentially, where he can't win out of a small group. He has to win solo. Um, to me, this is like Chekhov's lack of race awareness. Um, this is going to come into play. If you introduce lack of race awareness in the first act, it has to come into play in the third act. Uh, I think this is going to be a big problem for Wout Van Aert at World Championships. They're sharing leadership on the Belgian World Championship team. And I just can't imagine it going well. We, we saw a little taste of it, a little bite of it at the Olympics where Remco, for kind of no reason, attacked with 50k to go before a climb, gets dropped in the climb, leaves Wout isolated. Wout can't pull any, can't pull every move back in the finale and then loses the race because of it. Um, I, I think this is going to continue to be a problem at world championships. And I bet other teams, if they're smart, are going to try to exploit this friction between Remco and Wout and exploit the fact that Remco has no idea what he's doing. Try to get him in a small group, have him pull that small group away from Wout and then beat him in the sprint. And then you've used Wout's teammate to neutralize Wout, which I think is exactly what's going to happen. So uh, just something to keep an eye on. And Remco is a huge talent. He looks great on a bike. He's fun to watch, but uh, I'm concerned that A, he doesn't know what he's doing, and B, he doesn't seem to be making a lot of progress. Where even someone like Matthew Vanderpool, um, who I think has very poor tactical awareness in road races, does seem to be learning. And he is, I feel like he is getting better at reading a race, which brings us to the Antwerp Port, Port Classic, won by Matthew Vanderpool. Uh, not, not, a, not a stacked field by, by any means here. Um, he beat Taco Vanderhorn. They were off the front together. Uh, but in, Unlike Remco, Taco did try to attack uh, with 1.7k to go, which I thought the right was the right move. He knows he's not going to beat Vanderpool in an uphill, long two-man sprint. I mean, almost no one in the world can do that. Taco attacks him. Vanderpool sees it coming, coming out of a roundabout, responds. I thought Vanderpool looked 
pretty good. I mean, he looked agile. He looked strong when he closed that down. So if there's questions about the back, I, in my opinion, that answers them. And then they get into the sprint and Vanderpool just absolutely smokes them. You know, what do I know? I'm not a doctor. I thought the back looked good. His form is probably not where it was earlier this year. I assume he had to take time off because of the back. But I, I think this is, will be good enough to get him to the world championships and pair Roubaix, which uh, both those races are going to be so much better if he's at. So I really hope he's there. And actually, Wout should want him to be at Worlds because he'll take a lot of the heat off Wout. Um, if it's just Wout, no Vanderpool, I think we're going to see like the Fab, you know, it's like with Fabian and Peter Sagan when they were at their best, got marked out of a lot of these big one day races. But I'll, do, I'll be doing more in-depth Worlds previews as those races approach. They start this Sunday. Um, I think the, the senior men's and women's time trials are dur- during the following week. And then the women's race is the following Saturday. The men's race is the following Sunday. So I will be doing more content related to that as we get closer. Now let's get to Sarah Gigante, a young Australian hotshot. Um, she's for her age, she is so good, unbelievably good. Um, she's also, as you'll see in the interview, one of the toughest people I've, I've maybe ever talked to. Um, Australians are tough. I, I guess I knew that conceptually. I was shocked at some of the stuff she was saying. For example, she crashes at Flush Wallone earlier this year, breaks seemingly every bone in her body, gets back on her bike, catches up to the main group, and then only stops racing when she realizes she's broken so many bones she cannot brake. She cannot stop the bike because she can't pull the brake levers. And that's why she drops out, not because she was in, ex- in extreme pain. So super impressive young woman. Uh, moved to Europe full-time just recently. Um, extremely difficult to move away from home at that age. It's, it's got to be exponentially more difficult to move to a foreign country. Um, and she's making the jump from Tipco Silicon Valley Bank to Movistar later this year. She also talks about how uh, just two years ago, she couldn't get any team managers to respond to her emails about joining even just semi-pro teams. So the fact that now she's moving to biggest historical outfit, they're kind of the Ferrari of, of cycling teams. So that is a huge program to be a part of for her. I think it's going to be great for her. Oh, and Sarah has also uh, recently been ill, which is keeping her out of races. So I mentioned that a few times in the interview. We don't, we don't explicitly say what's going on. So I just want to clear that up before we get in. So if anyone's confused why she's not racing and is uh, mentioning being sick, that is why. All right, Sarah. Well, well, thanks for coming on. It's great to have you. Cool. Thanks so much for having me. So you are, I, I could not believe how young you are. I, cause I remember you winning the Australian, first of all, you're a professional cyclist from Australia on the TIPCO Silicon Valley bank team. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I joined them at the start of last year. And I'm just finishing up with them at the end of this year. It's been a great two years. So I, <laughs> I remember you winning the national championships, the Australian national championships, that like the adult one in 2019, which means you must have been 18 years old. Yeah, yeah. It was crazy. It was in January as well. So it was, I think my first, like, yeah, it was definitely my first championship race with the elite. I was only first year under 23, but. Um, yeah, being a girl, we don't get to race in under 23. So straight up from under 19s into elites. And yeah, it was pretty insane. I was so nervous that I would get pulled out and not finish the race just because like that course that we do in Banningong is so hard, so hilly. So I'd seen often under 23s or like everyone, but especially the 
under 23s, like making that jump, it's quite a big challenge. So I thought my best chance of, first of all, finishing the race, secondly, maybe getting a medal in the under 23 race if I could, um, was to get in the early breakaway and get a head start because I needed the <laughs> head start. But yeah, it turned out pretty incredibly, really. Um, the breakaway never really got caught. So I ended up in the breakaway dwindled down until it was just Sarah Roy, Shara Gillo and I. And then um, they were playing cat and mouse. I accidentally dropped them through a corner with, I don't know, 15K to go. And I thought, well, <laughs> it's now or never. And then Spratty, Amanda Spratt, she was chasing me down. But, yeah, I managed to hold them up. And then <laughs> suddenly I was the elite national champion and I had no clue what had just happened. It was just so surreal, I think. I didn't sleep for the next month and yeah, it was just a crazy, crazy, crazy experience. The best. Were the rest of the, was the rest of the field like, who the heck is this? Like what's going on? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. And I was like that. I was like, what just happened? What? <laughs> and what team were you racing for at the time? Uh, Roxel Attacker. So just a, it's an awesome team, but it was a domestic team at the time. They've now actually stepped up. So they're the only Australian continental team, which is pretty cool. But yeah, it was, it was exciting. And that must have like really changed the trajectory of your career. Cause I, so that was 2019 by 2020, you were on TIPCO. Um, do you think, yeah, yeah. Do you think that result kind of launched you into, I, I guess you were a domestic elite at the time into the pro ranks? Yeah, definitely helped me get onto Team TIPCO Silicon Valley Bank. And I'm so, so glad that I had that opportunity um unfortunately why I said before it's been great in a way is because I haven't actually been able to raise that much mainly just the pandemic and then injuries and now this illness um but it's been an awesome two years and the team it's such a family environment I think it's been a really good way to like ease my way into the pro ranks and especially if we were able to race in America if COVID wasn't a thing, then it would have been a great stepping stone. That's also why I was so stoked to sign with them. Um, you know, like Australia, the fields are like very small and there's, yeah, not that many teams in comparison to America's like the next level. And then Europe, yeah, obviously that's level 100. So it would have been an awesome stepping stone. But even without that, um, they were really, really great with me, really patient and always so nice. Yeah, I, I do feel for people around your age. I mean, because it's like, you know, whatever for me, a 24-month pandemic, who cares? Like, what, what am I doing anyway? But for you, I mean, that's such a, a critical part of your development that you've kind of, that's almost been wiped off the map, like with 2020 being such a reduced calendar where you're, you know, 20 to, or 18 to 20 is like such an important racing block versus you know, maybe a more established rider like Mariana Voss, probably COVID didn't disrupt her that much. And then going from racing, and I, I want to talk to you more about this, racing in Australia, which um, I mean, must be much different than racing in Europe, to then kind of having to like skip the US, jump straight into Europe. That must have been pretty overwhelming, I imagine, at the start yeah, of this year. Yeah, the whole, whole never. It feels like a different sport, really. Like, I love cycling, but the cycling I do in Australia and the cycling I do in Europe, even though I love them both, they're completely different. So like I said, the fields in Australia are so much smaller and often like the winner, it's more about who's the strongest 
just because there are fewer riders and, I mean, less teams and everything like that. Obviously, tactics and their technical ability and everything still applies. But when you come to Europe and you're doing, like, the spring classics, 150 riders, like, cramming into a small cobbled stone road with, like, all these twists and turns and all all the world to a team, so it's, yeah, completely different. So it's even though I didn't actually get to race much, I've learned so much in the races I have done. I think it's actually really sad. I think I only raced, like, with Team 2K Silicon Valley Bank, maybe, I don't know, less than 20 race days over the two years, I oh, think. Oh, that's wild. It's <laughs> pretty sad, yeah. But it, I had a great time in the ones I did do. And... I, it's funny. I was. I, everyone I talk to says the same thing that it's like a different sport in Europe. Um, and your roommate Kristen Faulkner, I almost think was helped because she COVID screwed up her plans to race in the U.S. So she like really <laughs> has only raced in Europe, which probably helps her in a certain way because she doesn't have that comparison point to be like, oh my god, this is so different. Like, what's going on? Yeah, she is so amazing. She's right now. She's in Andorra training at altitude for the world champs. And I really, really hope, obviously I want the Aussies to win too, but maybe like a dead heat. I want Kristen to win. <laughs> I think she can. <laughs> She's so I, strong. I, yeah. I was actually thinking that too. I think she could legitimately win the world championships because she's yeah, yeah that, for sure. that good. And I, I was actually talking, she kind of has an interesting story about how she ended up on Tipco. I similar, similar to you, I guess a little bit different because she is a few years older. Like, so you win Australian national championships and then like, does Tipco call you? Like, how did, how did that functionally work out? Like, how did they even approach you about joining the team the next year? Actually, I was the one, I was so keen to turn pro. Ever since I was young, I've just always wanted to be a pro cyclist. And I thought in 2019, I had the jersey. So I was like, well, now's my chance. Like, I've actually won a race. Now people might listen to me. So <laughs> I emailed like all the teams I could get a list of the email addresses for. And I I think I got like one or two no's and the rest like didn't reply. But then um, Michael Engelman, he helped me. He's awesome. I, I've never actually met him, but he's <laughs> this really nice guy that lives in America and he got me a guest spot the two of the healer on a composite team and I had the best experience ever. It was so, so fun. It was my first, yeah, first time racing overseas um, in the elite field. It was so cool. And then he also knew of Linda and Rachel. So he was like, so like, what are your plans for next year? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to get on a pro team, but it's pretty tricky. And then, yeah, I guess it's a bit of who you know. Um, he reached out to them for me and then we had a bit of, yeah, chatting and then suddenly I was signing for 2020. So that was really exciting. That's, yeah, that's, that's really, that's crazy that you could be Australian national champion and then you're emailing teams and they're just not emailing you back. It's cause it's, I mean, <laughs> they obviously must get a ton of like cold emails, but it's mm. like, you're not just some random, like that's a big deal to win <laughs> the Australian national championships and just to like get like no response that is wild it doesn't surprise maybe me. i had the wrong email address <laughs> i'll tell myself that <laughs> for all 15 it does, nah, it's does fine. not shock. i got one that said yes and it was an awesome one <laughs> um and that so that's wild that Gila is the first race you did abroad that's a really unique race i mean and it's an extremely remote part of the u.s um and you oh man i loved it so much i think 
apart from okay the the olympics were like the best nationals is my favorite race every year but healer that was so much fun i loved it and i was looking forward to it so much last year and then so much this year unfortunately both times it got cancelled but i did do the virtual tour of the healer don't know if that counts <laughs> um so i'm the most recent winner actually no i'm wrong because they held another virtual healer on the there's oh there's Zwift I won it on Zwift and then RGT I think that's what it's called they did another one like three months later so I'm not the most recent oh the Zwift <laughs> one is what counts the Zwift that's that's <laughs> the officially sanctioned one that was a bit ripped off um <laughs> it, well, and what did you like about that race so much uh, I just loved well the team I was on was amazing so it was called Lux I think they're still around yeah. they have like a junior team yeah they were so nice so like our DS, our mechanic, all the riders were so nice. And I was just like, just so happy to be there. Like the hills were so massive and the altitude and then everyone was so nice. We were staying in like post housing um, both the week before. I got there a little bit early with my, I had one of my teammates from Roxel to Taka, Justine Barry. She also joined me on this composite team. So we stayed in two different host housing setups in the week before. And then for the race, our whole team, including the DS and the mechanic, we all stayed in a, this this person's house. And I was just like in awe of how kind everyone was. I think that was definitely the best part. Like, I've never seen that before, just people letting you stay in their house just because they're really kind. <laughs> it was so lovely. That's like, yeah, it's like a great tradition of U.S. racing. Um, I, I don't know where it started, yeah. but it is kind of a unique thing where, where you'll just be staying in random people's houses. Oh, it's so lovely. And then after Healer, then we did two of all the crits with the, the rest of my Roxel attacker team flew out and we did a lot of the crits. And I mean, I didn't like, like the actual racing quite as much as Healer just because I loved Healer so much. But yeah, the generosity of everyone. And then the atmosphere, I was just, yeah, I was so shocked at how different it was to Australia. I just remember Cry Baby Hill and all my teammates were like sprinting for the preems and trying to win the race and stuff. And there I was just every lap. There was this guy with a, a fishing line and, and a doll <laughs> dangling off the end. And in the doll's hand, there was always like a, a, a dollar note. And <laughs> my teammates were doing all this cool stuff. And I was just there like trying to get a dollar <laughs> note every lap. And by the time I finished, I had like $25. <laughs> no, that's a wild weekend. The Tulsa Tough races that's that's funny that you were i mean you must have been so it was two years ago you must have been 18 years old and you're just those are yeah. wild races to be at just traveling around going <laughs> to those crits that must have been a pretty that was so fun and so did, you must have were you just finished with high school when you won the national yeah yeah i was in my oh yeah when i won nationals i just finished high school like a month ago and then when i was in america then I was, yeah, just in uni. So I could do that remotely, which is good. And are you still, are you still in university now that you're living full-time in Europe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm still in uni. COVID, in, for that sense, COVID has actually been really helpful because now they, before I was doing it remotely, but not because it was offered online. It wasn't offered online. I was just like making it kind of work, but it was annoying, like having to miss tutorials and then just try and catch up. Um, with a worksheet online whereas now the tutorials are offered on zoom and everything so I hope that part stays for a while 
because even some of my tutorials are at like 5 a.m., 6 a.m., which isn't ideal. I did get up for a couple at 4 a.m., but then daylight savings kicked in and I didn't have to get up at 4 a.m. anymore. <laughs> but on the whole, it's a lot easier now that it's offered online. Um, and so, I mean, that's pretty wild that you're, so you're 20 years old now, you're in university, but you live in, you, do you live in Spain full-time in Girona? Mm, yeah, I just moved here. So actually I came and stayed here for a few months just in the lead up to the Olympics um, just to have a base and it turned out a good idea um, to have a base because I ended up not racing that entire time because I was injured from my crash at Flesh Wallone. I broke a few bones there. So, yeah, I came here, rehabbed a lot, <laughs> really hard so that I'd be ready for the Olympics. And then I figured I loved it so much that I decided to, yeah, <laughs> make this my base for the next few years. So now I'm living with my Tipco Silicon Valley Bank teammate, Kristen, which is really exciting. She's so nice. And she's really strong. So once I'm better and she's back, then we can go smash out some rides together. So you're really new to, to living in Europe. You just went over there before, or I guess for the spring classics and then got the apartment before the Olympics. Yeah, that's it. Like I came to Europe the last two years, but only for like four yeah. weeks each time. And are you from, where are you from in Australia? I'm from Melbourne. No. So how's the transition from, from that to, to Girona? How, how, how are you liking that? Oh, I mean, the roads, the riding is so much better here. Like I thought Melbourne was great. That's the sad thing. Like now <laughs> I'm going to go back and I'm going to be like, what is this? Like I'm so spoiled here. I, I just love it. There are mountains everywhere and like it's so safe to ride. That's definitely the best part. So safe. And I can ride my time trial bike outside, which is really good for me because I ride my time trail back a lot. So in Melbourne, I live like right in the city centre, like literally 2K from Federation Square, which is, it's cool, but it's, it means I do not ride my time trail back unless I, I drive yeah. a couple of hours pretty much. So um, I just ride on the ergo maybe four times a week at home, like in a normal week, but then sometimes way more, sometimes, oh no, probably not much less than that, <laughs> to be honest. So I've been so spoiled here. Like you don't even need an ergo unless you're injured, which is nice. That's pretty, that's wild to go from, you were, you were achieving those results, living basically in, in a major downtown, like a downtown of a major world city. And then you've only <laughs> recently like been able to live in a place that's actually like very suitable for training. That's going to be. That's true. Although Melbourne does have the best bunch rides in the road, in the world, I have to say. Like maybe we don't have the, the nicest roads. Okay, we definitely don't have the nicest roads. And it's, yeah, a bit hectic with the training um, in traffic and everything like that. So many stoplights. <laughs> everything like that is bad, but we have so many good crits and so many good bunch rides. So I really miss that. And I'm, I've got to try and like work out a way to get more bunch riding here, like find the bunch rides. I'm sure there are. Like the people I ride with in Melbourne, my favourite group rides they're all like 40 year old men yeah. and i just love it we just race to all like race up every hill race to the stops not stop signs race to like 60 signs i mean um so i'm sure there are a group of equally awesome and friendly mammals here i just have to find them <laughs> and that's that's i've always i've never been to melbourne i've always wanted to go and do the group rides because they, they are like famously great group rides 
Um, it, and I was always, I was talking about this with my wife recently. Like why, like, why are there so many good Australian cyclists? I mean, it's, the country must be a tenth of the size of the U.S. Um, and as you're saying, the racing scene isn't particularly robust. Like there's definitely races and there's strong people in them. But Australia pumps out so many great cyclists on both the men's and the women's side. I mean, like Jack Haig just got third at the Vuelta. And he was, I mean, a relatively unknown before that. And then anytime there's anyone with like a slightly American sounding name and they're winning, you're like, no, they're definitely not American. Like they can't be American. <laughs> it must, they must be Australian. What do you, why do you think that is? I mean, and it probably has something to do with the, with the bunch ride culture that you're talking about where there, there must just be something. Cause I assume is cycling like popular in Australia or is it a pretty niche sport? Yeah, it is strange how we managed to have so many cool cyclists. I think it's awesome that we do. And it's awesome just to follow the results and see people like Jack absolutely smashing it. And you're right. It's not like we have like a huge number of racing cyclists or a huge number of riding cyclists. Actually, when I come to Europe and see people riding around everywhere and like more kids on bikes here for sure, it's it's not the safest sport in Australia. So I think it's just that we, uh, as a nation, we're really into sport. We're quite competitive. Like things like the Olympics, you grow up and like every second kid wants to go to the Olympics. And then once you get into cycling in Australia, even if it's kind of hard to find it, then everyone is so lovely. I just love the atmosphere so much, the community, like the clubs. There are so many different cycling clubs, and but everyone loves everyone else's club as well and then like all the group rides and you can just like even if when I race in a women's race maybe the field is really small so that's why it's such a different like feeling to the European peloton I can race with the men like I could race with the men like six times a week if I wanted like mainly crits and track but it's like it's racing and it's fun so I think that's a big part of it. Just everyone being so nice. And how big are the fields? Like when you're racing in a women's field in Australia? Uh, so probably the biggest, I mean, at nationals we had maybe 80, but at the domestic races, only like 50 to 60, maybe 40. So, and then state it would be even smaller, like less than 20. So it's growing, but it's, it's, certainly like a completely different kind of sport to the European racing you get here. And I think that's why it's often quite a a big, like big difference, like when Australian cyclists, especially the women, like at least if you're a man in Australia, then you'll get to practice like the domestic races will have more men. So I think that's why it's often such a big step up. And is, so if you're like a really promising cyclist in Australia, is the next step usually, is the scene small enough that you wouldn't just stick around and, and be winning races in Australia forever? Or is like the next step to go to Asia and like do some of like the Asian UCI races or does everyone generally want to go to, to Europe? Is that kind of still seen as the pinnacle of cycling success? Yeah, I, I don't think, I haven't seen that many like women take um asia as the next step i have seen people go to america so we have had people like peter mallins and kimberly wells loretta hansen um quite a few people went to america on their way 
um, I guess, all ending up in Europe. But no, I think we do lose quite a lot of people because there is no real clear step. Like, even if you go to America, how do you go to America? Do you try and like get in a collegiate team or do you try and get on a US pro team? Will they take you? Yeah. Like, it's quite challenging. Like, like I said, I was just emailing like cold emailing, like all the email addresses I could find. And even then I wasn't really getting any answers and that was as national champion. So it's quite challenging. I think there used to be quite a awesome system with the, the national team would take quite a few riders over to Europe each year and they'd stay for a few months. Um, and also for junior worlds, they used to take the juniors a, a month. I, I don't know because of, I was too young for that, but they used to take the juniors over early and they'd race in Belgium or something for a month or two and then go to junior worlds. And even if junior world isn't the be all and end all, but like the experience as a whole was a lot more helpful than by the time I got to juniors, the under 19s, then it was just, you go to junior worlds and then you go home. So it, it was so, so fun. I'm so glad I got to go. Really grateful for that opportunity. But it was definitely like we just turned out, we're like, oh, my God, what is this? Like Suddenly we've gone from like 10 people <laughs> to like 130 or something. And it was like, okay, one road race, one time trial, and then you go home and you're like, what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> that was crazy. Um, so and now they don't. Well, I mean, with COVID, has changed things as well. But the year after I went to Junior Worlds, then they didn't send any juniors the next year. I think just one junior boy. So it's definitely got a bit harder to make the, the step across to Europe, which is a bit of a shame. Like, I'm really glad I'm here now. I feel like once you get, get, get there and, yeah, once you get on a team, then you can see the opportunities opening up in front of you if you're lucky. It's all, it's, you have to have so much luck, though. That's the problem. And just making that first step is really difficult. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating to think how hard it is, even for someone as accomplished as you, to get there. And then once you're there, your name's out there. People aren't probably going to be ignoring your emails anymore. But you know what happens if you don't win that national championship? Like, mm, are you? Yeah. Are you still racing in in Australia? I mean, it's funny you mentioned. I, I remember, like, I think she was your teammate for a while, Peta Mullins. Peter Mullins. Yeah. Like she came to yeah, the exactly. US, maybe it was like two or three consecutive years, and she was like crushing people, like in these crits. And you're like, <laughs> that'd be Peter. <laughs> and you're like, there must just be, like, I couldn't believe how much better she was than, I mean, because there's like pretty good American women cyclists, and like, it just seemed like the mm. Australians were at a different level. And you do see that with like both, like this guy, his name was Scott Law. He was an Australian, like, men's crit cyclist and he would come do the same thing just like come to Tulsa tough and mm. it's like people are good and they're just getting crushed by by this guy <laughs> um and you're just like wait like what what must the racing be like in Australia I guess you guys have the the bay crits I think that's in Melbourne is that right like the yeah we have bay crits and then we have that domestic round like series across the year I think it's not that we don't have strong cyclists we do have really strong cyclists and like you could turn up to a domestic race and physically it's super, super hard to win. It's just to make that next step and go from going around this domestic scene to trying to, yeah, like live out of a suitcase, like quit your job, leave your family, leave your yeah. friends. 
like you need to be like really committed to the idea but you also have to be like super strong to like get that opportunity for a team to pick you up then you have to be pretty much winning in Australia and even though like the fields are small and maybe they're not UCI races it's actually still really hard to win in Australia just because people are still really strong so the ones that do make it overseas often that's why they're strong just like we do have more people that well and truly good enough to be in Europe or good enough to be in America they just don't get the opportunity to get there and I'm I am like really interested in like super young cyclists like yourself that kind of like because you essentially just skipped U23 because you went straight from junior to being like a senior world champion or a senior national champion and then you're on a pro team racing and in senior races um and you've seen this with like like Quinn Simmons is an American that kind of did the same thing. I think he's the same age as you, actually. Um, and then like Tade Pogacar, I think maybe did a couple U23 races before he's just like, ah, oh, maybe I'll go in the Tour de France. It's like people thought this was impossible mm-hmm. even like five years ago. And now, I mean, you guys are obviously like all in an elite class. Like your average rider could not do what you're doing where you just kind of like, oh, I'm 18, I want to race with, some of the best cyclists in the world, I guess I'll do that. But I do wonder if, if in some ways you benefited from that, where if you're in the, you like, is what you're saying, if you're going through these progressive steps, it's still like, it's not easy to win in U23. It's not like, you know, maybe Quinn Simmons isn't dominating U23, but he's getting third at a Vuelta stage where in America, it was always this big thing where it's like, well, you do the you, you do the progression, you go abroad with the USA cycling development team, and then you'd see riders like Taylor Finney, who were incredible juniors, and then almost like stall out at a certain point, while like Mikhail Kiyavkoski was like losing to Taylor Finney as a junior, mm. and then was world champion five years later. So it's like, I, I, I'm, I'm cool. so curious, like, you, you know, it's like, you got you got like you're like on the cutting edge like kind of breaking the logic of like conventional wisdom for that there was for a long time where you're like no i think i'll just race against the pros and i'll still do pretty well but the sad thing is i think you're right it has benefited me like for sure getting to win that national title in the elites like that was the best experience of my life and i'm so glad that i've had this opportunity i'm fortunate i'm like physically, like, okay enough, I can keep up in the elite. So it, it suits me better and I can, yeah, learn a lot from my teammates and push myself. But in the women's side of things, we don't actually have an under-23 category. So it's not like I chose to do it. It's just that we don't have another choice. So I think, yeah, from that kind of perspective, it's actually bad not to, like, it's not bad that I, was able to jump into elites, but it's bad I didn't have the choice because it means that other people my age don't have the choice either. And maybe they're newer to cycling or not quite as strong yet. So to go straight from under-19s into, okay, you don't race or you're racing the very best women in the country or the world or wherever you're racing, it's quite a massive step. So that's why you often see that big yeah drop in numbers I guess because you go from raising just other kids your age to just raising the best and that's it's pretty tough not to have that choice and for things like world champs 
yeah, I, I do get a bit jealous sometimes when I see the, the boys my age racing in the under 23s and then we don't even have an under 23 category at Worlds at all. Yeah, if you're like you're not a physical freak, then you're just it's yeah, I get yeah, that's a good point. You go but from juniors really if you yeah. can't make that jump, they can be really tough because you have someone like Lauren Stevens on your team. I think she's, I think this is right. I mean, she's like had a very gradual progression through the sport where if, you know, if she does it, if she's not an American and doesn't have this, like, cause I guess the U S is kind of does function as the women's U 23 ranks. If you're not quite ready for Europe, you yeah, can race yeah, in the U S but if you're not American, you, it's hard, you know, you can't just kind of like camp out in the U S for five years doing races but if you are an american rider you can kind of like you know you can go to all these races and and like sky um like skylar schneider i think is uh she's on Mm. legion and she was like a good junior didn't didn't blossom in europe right away and then has kind of had this second career winning races in the u.s and then could maybe jump back to europe at some point but that's like a pretty as you're saying like a pretty privileged position to be in where you could have like a somewhat healthy racing ecosystem to fall back into that's not racing juniors in Australia and then racing against the best in the world at I mean I'm just looking at your like race schedule it's like all the hardest races you could imagine like Flesh Malone <laughs> Tour of Flanders Flesh that's why I break all my bones <laughs> and that I was looking forward to that I broke race all my bones how many what were what were your injuries walking away coming away from that Walking away, <laughs> I wish. I broke my fibula in my leg, my collarbone in five places, and I broke my elbow as well. So I was, yeah, I actually got back on my back during that race with all those oh injuries. And I chased back. I, I made it back to the peloton, but it was so dangerous. I'm so glad that I decided to stop in the end. Like, it was such a bad idea. I don't think I was thinking straight. I was just like, flesh, I was looking forward to this race so much. And I was trying to... Um, get a good result so I could be picked for the Olympic team. So I was just like so determined to get back on that bike and finish up the Mer de Hui. But then I think like 15 minutes later, I was like, no, this dislocated shoulder is not popping back in. I thought that's what I was hoping. I was like, okay, it's, it, it really kills. Something's very wrong, but maybe it's just dislocated. Maybe it will just pop back in. And I don't want to stop just in case that is the case. And then I'd be kicking myself. Oh my <laughs> so I just got back on, kept racing. And then I was like, no, I, I cannot even use my handlebars. And as soon as I stopped, then I felt my leg. I hadn't felt it when I was riding, which was nice, but I stopped and I'm like, oh my God, I think I've, yeah, breaking my leg as well. So I got to the hospital and I was like, yeah, just can you x-ray this and this and this and this and this? <laughs> and I was like, okay, now let's just stop x-raying things because every time you x-ray something, it's broken. <laughs> so that was not fun. That is intense. But, yeah. Oh, my God. I, did you make the call to stop or was your team car like, hey, you might have a bunch of broken no. bones? <laughs> it was me. I went to the race doctor a couple of times in the, the car and he, the first time he just sprayed me, I was like, I think I, he didn't speak um, English, but I spoke a bit of French from high school, luckily. So I was telling him, I think I might have like a broken collarbone. And then he just pulls out this spray and starts spraying my shoulder. And I'm like, unless I'm in Harry Potter's world and that's Scaligro, then I don't think that's going to help my broken collarbone. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, I went back to the bunch. I'm like, oh, well, I'll just keep riding. And then... 
I was like, no, this hurts. I'm going to check again. So I went to the doctor and this time he gave me a tablet. Um, I had that and I went back to the bench and I'm like, no, it's still not good. And then I was like, okay, if I can get out of the seat and somewhat ride out of the seat, then I'll keep going maybe if I feel okay. But otherwise it's kind of pointless because how am I going to get up the Murdohui, let alone do well up the Murdohui if I can't even get out of the seat? And then I realised I was so far from being able to get out of the seat. It wasn't even funny. So I think it was definitely the right decision to stop, but it was sad at the time. That is insane. I think you just answered the question of why Australians are so good at cycling for such a small country. <laughs> that is wild. And it was also crazy. I assume he just gave you a painkiller to then ride yeah. in a high-speed bunch. Like, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. Just take this. This narcotic that mm. suppresses your reaction times. Get back in there with 200 people. Not great. <laughs> I'm glad that I was just at the back of the bunch. That was also something that made me decide to pull out in the end, as well as not being able to get out of the seat. So it seemed a bit pointless. Um, there was like a crash of maybe eight people just a little bit ahead of me. And I'm like, this is so stupid. Like I can hardly break. I should not be here. So that's a... <laughs> pretty yeah. incredible recovery from that to that you did make the Olympic team without that result. Um, but that's yeah. a lot of a lot of broken bones to come back from. I'm just looking at the calendar. So that was in April, is that right? Yeah, the end of April, and then the Olympics were like 25th of July, the Olympic road race. So it wasn't that long, considering I had a broken leg. The leg was annoying because. If I trained too early or trained hard yeah. too early, then I would pull, like use my hamstring too much and then pull the bone out of alignment. So even though I only needed surgery for the collarbone, um, my collarbone was the easy one. My elbow was really annoying for a long time. And even now, like it's not perfect. Although I have already broken my other elbow. So now I can't. Um, straighten either elbow. Now I'm actually more symmetrical than I was before. Maybe that's how I'm looking at it. But yeah, my leg was really annoying because I had to not ride for a while and then ride it like 90 watts for 30 minutes each day and slowly build it up. But yeah, I got to Tokyo and I had so much fun. And I'm so how long until you could train, like fully train? It must have been like June, right? No, I think. Oh yeah, June, May, June. Yeah, it was June. So you were, I mean, but then I just trained hard for two months. You had a pretty good result in Tokyo for not that much training and then having those injuries. Um, were you happy with your, with your Tokyo excursion? Yeah. I mean, I always, I'm very competitive. I always want to, whatever I get, then I want to do better, but I was happy that I got to experience it. That's for sure. And I think at the time I was disappointed with how I raced, but then after even just a couple of days, like it, all the emotions, it's such a roller coaster. Like everything about it is just this massive roller coaster. So I think after a couple of days, then I was happy, and I'm mainly happy with how I went into the game. So it was quite a challenging lead up mentally as well as physically. Like you know, once you crash and then you're living in Europe for the first time, living out of home for the first time alone, and trying to deal with all the rehab and even though like Duran is so nice, sometimes it felt very lonely being so far away with all the injuries. And then it was really hard. It sounds silly, but I really struggled most with being like not at my peak. I'm just, I just wasn't really 
used to not getting PBs all the time because I've never really had, like I've broken quite a few bones now, but they're always arms and stuff. So I've never had to have time off where I just like sit on the couch and wait for my leg to heal. So yeah, that first month, which was only like two months from the Olympics, that was challenging just going outside and then just (laughs) like comparing like I don't like to go off power too much, but because I didn't have anything else to go off, then I was really relying on it probably too much. Normally I go off like how I feel in races, how I feel in bunch rides, like even just like, oh, I'm faster than Jack, <laughs> my 40-year-old friend on the bunch ride, and now he's faster than me, so I'm going to go train harder, you know, <laughs> like silly stuff like that. Or like, yeah, or times up a climb, like, oh, I got a PB up this climb, but now I was in a new place. I was riding only alone. So, and I wasn't racing. So I didn't have anything else to go off. And I was just looking at my power a bit too much, I think. So at least I've learned that for next time. Or even, yeah, the next time I can ride, I'm going to just ride more and feel. I mean, that's really hard. I mean, being away from home is like difficult at any age. Being away from home when you're young is like really hard, especially living away from home, like living in a different town then your parents at 20 can be difficult. Living in a different country must be absurdly hard. And then being hurt, I mean, that can be like such like a, because you realize how vulnerable you are, especially when you're in a foreign country and you have an injury. That must have been a a tough time. Did you have the apartment at the time or were you kind of like stuck in like temporary housing, housing in Belgium when you were recovering from that? Or did you have your place in Girona at the time? I had, I moved. So I was planning on coming to Girona anyway, so I had a rental, um, yeah, for the couple of months before that, before the Olympics and before I moved into this longer-term rental. So it was it was a good place. It was just that it was quite far away. When I say quite far away, Girona is very small, but it was a few kilometres out of town, up a hill. So it was a bit hard with my broken leg, like hobbling to the shops and back, um, things like that. And I just felt a bit isolated compared to now. I'm really liking it with Kristen. Firstly, it's nice having someone to talk to when you come home from a ride, things like that. But also like there are coffee shops everywhere around. And even though I don't drink coffee, it's nice just to be able to go out and see like my friends. There are so many cyclists here. So that's really nice. But also, even though I say I did feel quite isolated and a bit lonely at times, which I did. I have to say I had such awesome support even so like we have um, Cycling Australia now has a road performance director based in Europe, which is really cool. Um, But I think even if I wasn't part of that, Rory Sutherland, I think everyone knows him here in Durana. He's like the the head of the town when it comes (laughs) to cycling. And he was just so, so nice. Like he even drove me to doctor's appointments at the start and like helped translate um because i didn't speak any catalan and only a tiny bit of spanish and it was even coming to a couple doctor's appointments and things like that that was so lovely and then for the first week like trying to get between um belgium then to holland then to spain then my teammate eri from tipco silicon valley bank and her coach was so lovely like driving me around trying to help me set up my bank account and Things, random things like that that you don't realize how important they are and how much you need help sometimes and it's okay to ask for help because some people are just so lovely that they will help 
Yeah, that's <laughs> that's um, like a lot of people in their early 20s anywhere in the world. You're like you're just not thinking about anything. But and also, I think, yeah, like so just something you wouldn't think about, like setting up a bank account in Spain. Mm-hmm. There must be there so many little things like that. I assume the visa process must be rather difficult too, especially during COVID. Like doing all the paper. yeah yeah it wasn't the easiest and so do you speak I, i've always wondered about this because all these uh english-speaking cyclists live in girona i imagine amongst yourselves it's easy to converse in english uh, but yeah like doing administrative things like going to the doctors do you have to speak catalan it, do you just kind of like have to learn it or how does that um yeah i think you can get by with spanish i'm learning spanish also because of I'm joining Movistar next year. And I was also already learning Spanish before, just at a rather slow rate. And now I'm like, oh, I you know, better get to move on. My duo Al is always yelling at me. I'm trying to become better so I can talk. By the time it gets team camp, I want to be able to talk a little bit or they'll think I'm just super quiet. <laughs> but no, you can. I think you, there are quite a few people here that don't speak either Spanish or Catalan, but it's nicer if you can speak one, preferably Catalan, I guess, just more people speak it. But I'm learning Spanish because it's a bit more universal. So, and, and then I think I'll be fine. And how did that move come about? I mean, that's a big, I, I guess, maybe in, in women's cycling, Tipco would, would potentially even be more decorated than Movistar. But Movistar, at least like in the holistic, view i mean that's like one of the the most famous teams on the men's side they've been around for like 30 30 something years um and then obviously potentially the best rider in the world at the moment Annemiek van vluten will be your teammate how did that yeah. how did that move come about and then how do you what are your thoughts on going over to that team yeah so actually during last year i signed with a rider agent jamie barlow and he has his own um, cycling management company called 258 Protégé. So I'm part of that now. And, I mean, I, I've been absolutely loving my time on Team Tupico Silicon Valley Bank. And I could definitely see myself staying here. But, yeah, we had a, a talk to a few different teams and just weighed up. There were so many pros for all the teams. And I guess there are always cons to every decision too. Um, had to weigh those up and sit down with my list. It was really hard to decide, but in the end, I just thought I'd be able to learn so, so much from not just Anamik, but yeah, there are quite a few really, really experienced riders on Movistar. And then also lots of up and coming riders that I think it would be really awesome to develop alongside. So already on Movistar, you see like Leah Thomas is so good and Anamik Van Vluten is obviously amazing. Emma Norsgaard is getting better and better. Um, there, but there are just like so many, the atmosphere seems amazing. And I love learning languages, to be honest. So I'm really excited because I think hopefully this time next year, then I'll be closer to fluent than I am now. <laughs> that is, that's, that's pretty admirable. I, I don't, I don't think the average person could be that aggressive about learning a language, but I have like, there's an American Larry Warbus on AGTR. And it's like, I assume he just has to speak French all the time. Cause I imagine that's the, yeah, the daily language. It's, I mean, obvious, like you're extremely accomplished professional, professional cyclist. Like you could be world champion, but it's like, at the same time, it's almost like a super intense language accelerator that you're going through. 
that you're like, <laughs> if you accomplish nothing else, like that's pretty cool. Like you got to be in a Spanish heavy environment for three years and had to pick up the, like, it's like a real sink or swim with the language learning. That's so true. Like when I was mentioning Rory before, Rory Sevlin, he was a pro cyclist. And I think he was telling me when he came over, he could only speak English when he, he was like 18. And then now he can speak like five other languages just from all the experiences he's had in cycling, which is pretty awesome. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I love languages. I think that's awesome. I also think that's something that like it's not in the American mentality to do that. Like Americans would probably want to avoid learning a language if they could. And I do think it, it holds a lot of U.S. cyclists back where if you like Jack Haig is on Bahrain, you know, it's like the, the Australian riders, mm. men and women tend to like disperse out and go to these different teams where if you're just not willing to take that leap culturally and linguistically, you can kind of get stuck on like the same two or three teams that maybe aren't the mm. best fit for you. So from like a life perspective, it's great. And then also from a cycling, cycling perspective, to be able to do that is really opens a lot of doors. I mean, that's, I think that's going to be a great team for you. Like it's a great fit. And I assume, I, I'm not quite sure how it works. I'd love to know more about it, but like if, you know, I assume they have some access to the men's apparatus, like the training staff and the performance staff where that's got to be a big advantage of women's cycling to not just be on a women's only team, but to have access to, you know, potentially, I imagine their budget is like in the 30 million euros a year range um, for, for both their teams combined. So that's like quite the, quite the organization to be a part of. Yeah. I mean, I know there are some awesome standalone teams as well. So not just Tico, but also SD works, one of the very, very best teams and their standalone, which is super impressive. But I do think Movistar has an, like an incredible setup so not just like things that you might like right now I look at them and I'm like oh my god that's so cool like team buses even like yeah. turning up to a team bus and like I think little things like that could add up but also like you said the performance directors um they have altitude camps they have aerodynamic testing things like that I've never gone in a wind tunnel so I'm excited hopefully I get to do some of that and but mainly I'm like all of that is super incredible, but I think mainly I'm looking forward to just being able to learn so much from my teammates and also the staff seem really lovely, like a kind of like the team I'm on right now, actually a big family environment. And I think that's super important for me. I really like that. And I love when the focus is on having fun because even if you do want to go fast, it's always nice to have fun. I've always, why else are you doing it? Like, why you know like why do we do anything i just like having fun and when i'm having fun i go faster anyway and that's interesting that you've never been in a wind tunnel i i hadn't thought about that i guess yeah that would be quite the operation for a standalone women's team to book wind tunnel time to get a rider there that's pretty expensive is that is it common for like women because you're a good time trialist i think you just won or earlier this year you won the australian national time trial championship mm. do you think a lot of the top female time trialists are getting wind tunnel time or do you think most of them don't have access to that no i think the, the sport's becoming more and more professional i think that quite a few do just mainly on the bigger teams it's a bit more accessible 
Although in saying that, um, Tupico Silicon Valley Bank, they're definitely stepping up next year. They're going well to it, so they'll probably have it as well. But yeah, on continental teams, it's obviously a bit harder. Like when you have to choose between what you're going to spend your money on. No one has unlimited funds, and I guess wind tunnels don't top the list. But yeah, I think that quite a few cyclists have that now, which is really cool. I think shockingly, Jack Haig, who just got third at the Vuelta, I couldn't believe this, has never been in a wind tunnel either. Like yourself, oh, no where like even on the men's side where the budgets are so big that something could slip through the cracks mm. like that. It's, it's pretty mind-blowing. Interesting. You, you kind of mentioned when we were talking about Gila that um, you were kind of shocked at like the size of the, the hills or the mountains. Um, I imagine growing up in Melbourne, like you weren't climbing a ton of mountains. But do you think that now that you've like, you know, you can train in Girona, you're racing in Europe, which has like a wide variety of terrain, like, do you see yourself as a climber or what do you think your, like your, your rider profile is going forward and like where you'll find the most success? Or are you just good at everything? You'll just win, mm. win everything. No, not good at everything. I'm not good at sprinting. <laughs> I wish I was. I think right now I'm best at climbing and time trialing. I really, really enjoy climbing. And <laughs> I mean, time trialing, it's, you know, a love-hate relationship. I love time trialing. I really do. But yeah, maybe an uphill time trial would be my favorite race. <laughs> They've had a few of those. I've been watching, uh, what was that tour? I just watched the one in Spain. Oh, the... Sarah yeah, Tizzet I think they challenge. had an uphill time trial. Yeah, they did. And so did um, the Giro, I think, had an uphill time trial. So, I mean, if I had to choose one race, I'd probably choose that. But just any hard race, any hard attritional road races as well, mainly attritional from hills preferably over wind, <laughs> although I'm trying to get better in the wind and the, get better echelons and everything. But, yeah, just a really hard, hilly day out would suit me best. That's, um, that's, that's, that's like a very Australian answer. Yeah. Just like the harder, the, just hard mm-hmm. races are good because everyone else will yeah. quit. Um, mm-hmm. Did you see, so I, I don't know if this is true, but I, there's like a women's supposedly like a women's tour de France next year. And one of the mm-hmm. stages was La Planche de la Belle Fille, which has got to be, that's like, that's a brutally steep climb. I feel like women's cycling, like it's, it's potentially biased against riders like yourself. Obviously Van Vluten has made it work. She's kind of a similar, another similar rider who just like the harder the race, the better she is. Cause you don't get, there can't be that many races that are like, you don't see many high Alpine opportunities mm-hmm. in women's cycling. All the courses are kind of like rolling. And then that tends to help, you know, someone like, I don't know. Anna Van, Anna Van der Bregen would probably be good on any course, but like Marion of Oz like dominated the sport for years on because she's, you know, if you take her to the finish, she's going to win in the sprint. She's strong enough. She's not going to get dropped on anything but like the hardest climb. So she could just like win over and over again versus I feel like it's not, it, it can probably be frustrating because there can't be that many like high alpine stages for you and you're not even not even high alpine just like mountain stages even like a yeah. like a pyrenee and mountain stages there's just not that many of them in the sport for riders like yourself so that's like unfortunate and got to be slightly frustrating but um if if that stage does happen at the women's tour de france next year that's got to be high up on your list for something you're targeting yeah you're not wrong it's definitely you don't see as many mountain top finishes 
or just any races with mountains. Also, really long tours. I think, yeah, like I said, I really like attritional racing and just like the more tired that everyone is, the better I'll go, the more I'll love it. So just like longer tours as well. We don't really have those. Like you see like three-week tour in the men's side. I think the Giro is eight or nine days, but and Ardesh actually that started today. I think that's about eight days as well, but everything else is quite short. So I think that's one really positive thing we're seeing is just races starting to get a bit longer, a bit harder. The Tour de France and Zwift are stepping up next year. And like you said, it, it sounds like it's going to be a really awesome race. And hopefully we can, you know, show the world what we're made of and do some really hard racing there. That's funny. I, I don't, this might not be true. I don't want to like spread disinformation. I swear that there's like a UCI rule that states a women's world tour race can't be over something like it's like five or six days. And then if you notice, I don't think the Giro Rosa is a world tour race because it's like eight mm. or nine stages long. So they like have to, they have to like opt out of being at the top level, like the top potential level just to host the race, which is a great, that seems like a crazy rule. And then is what, it kind of goes to what you were talking about where if you're a cyclist who just long races benefit you, it's like really a huge mm. disadvantage. It's kind of unfortunate that that's, that that's where the women's side of the sport is. It's never quite, I guess, just logistically, like three weeks could be tough. But yeah, it's funny that there's not more, you know, 10 to 14 day races where you think someone could make that work. Like, 90% of the men's calendar is, you know, not profitable, maybe even more than that, like 95%, but they still do like a nine day tour of Switzerland where you're like, if they're doing that, they've yeah, got to figure awesome. something out that they could do for women. That's that, of, that is a big yeah. thing. Yeah. I think the UCI definitely, I'm not sure of the specifics, but they definitely do have some maximums, which are in my eyes seem quite short. Like I think, maybe 150 kilometers is it like yeah. they have oh you can't have any race that's longer than that and then yeah i'm not sure in the days one but i think there is a rule surrounding that so if a race does want to go longer then they have to yeah i guess drop their classification including maybe drop it from being uci at all or they have to um, apply for exemptions and everything like that so yeah there are some barriers but it's not that we can't do it or don't want to. I remember one of my favourite memories was maybe a month after I won nationals um, as an 18-year-old, so I was still 18. I did the Melbourne to Warrnambool, which was so fun. It was 268 kilometres. Oh and my longest race before that was, sorry, my longest ride at all. Like I'd never ridden further than 132 kilometres in my life. And then I just rocked up. And I hadn't done any long training rides, just did that um, almost seven hour race. So that was so hard and so fun. <laughs> That's yeah. Like Australia has these like fun, they're like old races too, like predating mm. the current like world tour popular, kind of the Cadell Evans era of Australian cycling. There's just these long, long road races that are like kind of operate completely outside the, the UCI, which is like so fun. It's kind of like what's, happening now in the u.s where you have like the these long gravel races that are getting like mm. you know they're not in any way exactly. sanctioned but like 
you know, they're fun to do and a lot. Still prestigious. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, do you see yourself trying to come over and do some of those gravel races in the future? Yeah. After seeing how much fun my teammates are having at them, like Lauren Stevens, she's really, really good at gravel, but so is some of the others. So I think I'd love to try it for sure. Yeah. I Just looks, like I said, hard and nutritional. And with the men, I love that. Like just, you know, a really hard race. <laughs> is there like a current? dominant cyclist or it, or one from the past that you kind of look up to and think like yeah I could I could replicate that career oh I don't know about the replicating part but I certainly do look up to anime family and and I have for quite a number of years I remember was it 2000 2019 the year I won nationals I came over to Belgium for the first time and I was doing some commerces and anime she turned up to one of them, like she was racing. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And I saw her on the start list and I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. We're going to race anime. And then she, we got there. I, I, we were in the queue for the bathroom to like get our kid on and stuff like that. Or maybe it was registration or something. And she was like in the queue right in front of me. And I was in absolute awe. And then I like, I was like, oh my gosh, got to get a selfie. So then I ended up at that race. I got a selfie in like the toilet slash registration queue with Anna Meek Van Vliet and Mary Ann Voss and Anna Van der Breggen. That was one stacked Kermesse. <laughs> <laughs> that is why. That is, how did the Kermesse go? I'm trying to think. I'm pretty sure I got pulled out. <laughs> dropped and pulled. I, I don't know if I got dropped and finished or dropped and pulled out. I can't quite remember, but I just remember being happy with my selfie collection. <laughs> <laughs> And something I've I've been really curious about is um, the Olympic road race, because I I want to make sure I have this right. Like during basically your entire year, you guys have radios and you can like talk to your your team car and talk to each other. Is yeah. that right? But at, at yeah. World Championships and the Olympics, that ability is taken away. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. And so, what was that? I, I'm so curious about that road race because obviously we had like the kind of the stunning result of, you know, if you go back and watch the race, there's like an attack in the first 20 meters of the race being on that the eventual winner gets into. And then she wins the race from that breakaway, which is like really, it's kind of like your national championships. Like how much communication was there going on about what the gap to the breakaway was and um, how many people were up the road? Or were you guys just kind of like in the dark back in the peloton? Well, I was there and I found it very clear. Um, so there were motorbikes pretty often, like maybe every five minutes with time gaps and then all the, the riders' numbers. So we even knew like how many riders, like where they were on the course, who they were. Um, but mainly we were getting a lot of our communication by sending a rider back regularly. So Tiff Cromwell, actually, she was going back to the car really often, talking about DS, um, coming back to us, and then when giving us the biddens, then we were, and we were also just all trying to ride close to each other so we could chat often. So I think while we were there, then it was clear, but I can't speak for what happened after that because unfortunately most of us got dropped on the climb and I, I did make it back, so did Grace and Tiff, but yeah. I think after that, we were all just like near the back. Then we got dropped apart from Diff. But yeah, I can't speak for what happened right at the front. It was 
interesting to watch the replay, that's for sure. But while I was there, I found it fine. And we were just trying to, yeah, really work as a team and often go back to the car. Yeah, yeah. I'd imagine the car is like your lifeline in that situation. Where? Yeah, so I do feel sorry for like a small team because if you're the only rider, it's a bit harder to go, or a lot harder to go back to the car than for us. We were lucky to have four riders. But, yeah, I, I didn't really have the trouble travel with communicating for that, which was good. Yeah, it's interesting. That, yeah, there was, like, a lot of, like, uh, conflicting reports after that race about, like, the level of communication yeah. regarding what was going on at the front. I'd imagine, I mean, it, it looked humid. It looked incredibly humid. Was that the case on the road? Yeah, it was so boiling. Like, I tried to train in the hottest part of the day in the lead-up, so... In Girona, I was training some, not all the time, but sometimes I'd train at like 1 or 2 p.m. And I was finding that really hot. So, and plus I did so many ergo sessions inside um, while I was injured. I couldn't ride outside for a while. So I thought I'd like done heaps of heat prep. The ergo sessions were really, really hot because it was in Rory's little pain cave and it, it only had this tiny little fan and the room was pretty much just the size of a bike. Like it was just mean, like the four walls, I could pretty much touch all of them. And there was just that tiny little hand fan. So I was like pretty certain that I'd done all the heat prep in the world, even though it wasn't actual, you know, like sauna style stuff. I was like, nah, I haven't been training in the heat. Like it's been so hot. (laughs) I'll be fine. I, I get there. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like, a completely different type of heat. It wasn't that I didn't train in the heat, but just that humidity, it was really, really humid. And luckily we got there, I think it was a week before. So like, yeah, I didn't think it affected me much in the race. I was just excited, so I can't tell. <laughs> um, but I just remember those first couple of rides it was quite a shock. Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. It looked, it's like what you're saying. You can, you can train in as much heat as you want, but as soon as you get humidity like that, it can be really crushing. Like it's so hard for your body to, to cool down at a certain point. Like you're just heating up, heating up. And then you, you're just, you can't keep the level of Watts over a certain amount of time Mm. because your body like can't cool itself because you're sweating, but then the sweat is just hitting moisture on the outside of your body as well. So you're not racing the rest of the year just with the medical issues. Yeah, unfortunately. And there aren't, I didn't have many races left, to be honest. So, well, I did. By the time I got sick after Tokyo, I was going to have really good back end of the season, especially because of my crash. I didn't get to race much, like, between, yeah, just all the broken bones. And then suddenly I was going to the Olympics, so I had to rehab. So I already missed out on the Giro and La Course and Turrigan. I was meant to do those before the Olympics. And then after the Olympics, it was going to be good, like, Norway, Plue. I was mainly really excited for Ardesh and Gila. Ardesh, like I said, it started today and I'm still not well enough. And then Gila is cancelled. And then there aren't really many other races I was meant to do, just with time trial, chrono donations, that would have been fun. And I was hoping to get picked for Worlds, but I hadn't been picked anyway. The team was just announced a couple of weeks ago. So, yeah, my season's over, which is Pretty sad, but I'll be back. Yeah, that's a bunch. Some of those races are really would look really fun, like 
Norway, it's a mm, it's sh- like Gila, I, but potentially it's not, it's got to be frustrating in the moment. It's potentially not the worst thing, especially being so young to kind of have a forced break. Cause you could easily, you know, you could just with the, like with the calendar, you could just race like nonstop all the time. And then, you know, sometimes you can kind of like, I also want to ask you about this. So being Australian, do you, are you going to go back to Australia when it's winter in Europe or are you going to stay in Europe? Yeah, I think I'll go back. Yeah. So this is like the classic Australian thing. People go back and then it's all the fun racing. It's summer and they're like so fit. I have like a pet theory that like this hurt Richie Port's career slightly because it'd be so fit for Mm. Tour Down Under. Like he'd win on Wollonga Hill every year. And then he's doing (laughs) that while his competition in Europe is kind of, you know, like almost completely doing nothing, probably just building up their season. And then it can be like, hard to hold that form for like the rest of the year so it's potentially not the worst thing to yeah. have the force rest a little bit for sure it's a bit different we have our national championships in january and then straight into the tour down under although yeah i'm not sure what the tour down under will look like next year with all the travel restrictions will be interesting to see but we do have world championships next year uh in australia which is super cool where are they in australia worlds Wollongong, so just uh, south of Sydney in New South Wales. Oh, that's cool. So it would be really, really nice near the beach. Um, Bring your bathers. <laughs> <laughs> and so, is your plan to? Um, are you going to? You're going to go back and and try to do nationals and tour down under once you're recovered. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it depends on how I recover. Hopefully, <laughs> I love nationals so much. And it's is it always the same course? Is that? Do I have that? Is that the right country? <laughs> Yes, that's the right country. I well, I I was gonna give you a year when it wasn't on the Bunningyong course, but I, I I definitely don't know. Like I'm way too young to have not had it there. But even I remember going there every year to watch because I live in Melbourne. It's only like two hours away, but I can't remember a year that it wasn't there. <laughs> maybe like two thousand and. 11, maybe they raced a different part of Ballarat. I don't know, but the Australian nationals love Bunning Young. Fortunately for me, I also love Bunning Young, but I know quite a few riders that would like it, the course to change. Yeah, no, it's like slightly controversial because it, but having said that, it doesn't, it's not like the same rider wins every year. It, and it always seems like yeah, it's a it wacky is. race. It's, I, the course, if you're a pure sprinter, that's got to be frustrating, but. The course, I think it does its job. Like it, it always serves up like a pretty interesting race, and then you can just get a lot of like wide variety of ways people win it. So I don't know. Mm, I, I, that's for sure. Yeah, it's not like straight up a mountain, and it's not flat. But yeah, it's like who will win? Like an almost sprinter or an almost pure climber, or like anyone in between. It's it's really cool, and you often see. Yeah, wild card winners, which is I like that. Yeah, no, underdog wins. I think it's a really, it's like a really unique course. I mean, Australia just in general has like a great, like a really unique cycling scene. Like as an American, I was always kind of envious of it, especially after Cycling Tips was created, when it it used to like just be about Australian cycling, like back in the day, and you'd be like, it's kind of this like funny little window into like what's going on down there, like. They look like they're having a lot more fun than us. Like, what's the deal? What are we doing <laughs> wrong? 
you're, I think you're probably pretty fortunate you got to come up, especially in Melbourne. It seems like such a great cycling community and like, and it's something that could kind of catapult you from like a high school, mm. high school student to the European world tour. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah. I love Melbourne. <laughs> well, I'll let you go, Sarah. Thanks. Thanks for joining us and have a great recovery. And I hope you enjoy your fall in, in Spain. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, it was great to have Sarah. Uh, I hope she comes back on soon. She's supposed to come on back after the World Championships to give us an in-depth breakdown of what happened in the women's race. So that will be exciting. Enjoy your week and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye.